Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ, even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Hi, my name is Taylor Decker. I've been attending Gateway pretty much my whole life. I attend Summit Youth and also serve in the Kids Church Ministry. The text today comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 through 12. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not dependent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For a woman came from man, so a man also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. The master stood there, and then he knelt down in the dust. And he brought his student down with him, and he wanted to make sure that he had his students full and undivided attention. And then he shared that almost now infamous parable that most of you in this room know. He said, Daniel, son, when walking on road, walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get squished, just like grape. In karate, same thing. You karate do yes, or you karate do no. You do karate do maybe, and sooner or later, get squished, just like grape. Daniel-san, do you understand? And he looks at his master, Mr. Miyagi, and he says, Yes, I understand. And then they both stand up, and then there's that part of the movie that everyone enjoys when Mr. Miyagi, he takes a bucket, fills it with water and with soap, and he gives it to Daniel-san, and he says, Daniel-san, go wash cars. And then the camera lifts up, and you see this enormously long row of cars, and he says, wax on, wax off. And there he goes. And for the rest of the day, he starts cleaning cars. And the next day, Daniel-san, he shows up, and he's ready to learn some karate. And Mr. Miyagi, he brings him around to the back. He shows him this long plank, this long walkway of wood. And he says, Daniel-san, sand floors, showing the motions once again. And for the whole day, he sands the floor. Then he shows up on the third day, and he's ready to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel-san, paint fence. And on the fourth day, he's like, now for sure I'm going to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel, son, paint house. And on the fourth day, he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go fishing for the day. And at this point, 
Daniel-san is so agitated. He's so frustrated. He hasn't learned anything about karate. And by the time Mr. Miyagi comes back from his day of fishing and leisurely activities, everything erupts to an uproar. And he says to Mr. Miyagi, I'm not a karate student. I'm a slave. And then Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel-san, show me. Wash cars. Wax on. Wax off. Show me sand floors. Show me paint fence. Show me paint house. And there it is. Daniel's son, he didn't even know what he knew. And he starts countering and punching and moving and doing all these amazing karate moves. And every single kid who's ever watched this movie goes, oh, that's so amazing. I didn't know he knew all those moves. So awesome. If you haven't seen the movie, you should go watch it. You know, if I can be honest with you, sometimes when I read the book of 1 Corinthians, I feel a little bit like Daniel's son. Wax on, wax off. It's a bunch of rules, a bunch of regulations, a bunch of things that you got to learn how to do, and you start asking yourself, what am I learning? Like, I feel like I'm just a slave to rules. Wax on, wax off. Sand the floor, paint the fence, paint the house. What's it all about? Why do I have to learn this? Why do I have to constantly deny myself? Why do I have to follow all of these rules? And in the first 11 chapters of this book, Paul has been giving us a series of instructions, hasn't he? A list of things that we need to learn how to do and to do better and to not do. He says, here's what to do in your finances. Here's how to treat others. Here's how to seek the benefit and the welfare of other people over and above yourself. Here's how to deal with your sexuality. Here's how to not deal with your sexuality. Here's how to handle disputes. Here's how to handle lawsuits. Here's how to deal with contentious matters surrounding meat sacrifice to idols. And it feels like a bunch of rules. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Deny yourself, serve others. Deny yourself, serve others. And you're wondering, what's all this about? Why is this so important? And then we get to this chapter. Whoa. 15 straight verses that most preachers would much rather get a root canal than preach on. I told Pastor Adam this week, I'm planning on being sick on Sunday. And he said, no. So then I asked Marcel, and he said, no. And then I told Jaden before the service, I got a manuscript, and he said, no. So here I am. This passage, friends, is really confusing. There's little to no consensus on what it means for us today, and yet, it's God's word. This is God's word. And I hope, friends, that by the end of our time today, you will see the immense beauty and complexity of this passage and what it means. But here's one of the things that we have to recognize when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There are a variety of ways in which the church has either over-applied this passage or under-applied this passage. And so we have to be wary of that. And so to do this, here's what I want to do. First, I'm going to lay out for you what uh, biblical scholars and commentators disagree on, where the contention lies, why there's disagreement, so you can appreciate some of the, the subtle challenges that are tied up in this text. 
And then on the heels of that, I want to lay out some of the guiding principles that are absolutely clear in this passage that we can take with us. When I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors, he would often say um, to, to us as students, he would say, shout where scripture shouts and whisper where it whispers. And there's a whole lot of whispering in this passage, but there's some shouting moments too. And I want to be able to unpack that with you this morning. Because as tempting as it is to skip over this passage, friends, there's a lot that we can glean from it if we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. So let's start off with the challenges. There's, there's four particular challenges that I want to lay out at your feet. This is by no means exhaustive, but these are the four big ones. So here's the first one. There are a number of interpretive challenges with respect to to this passage. So let me just share two of them with you. First, if your Bibles are open, and I hope they are, you will see that the words head covering are used six times in these 16 verses. And it's unsure, uh, biblical scholars are unsure whether this has more to do with women having to wear something on their head, like a, a shawl or a hat or some sort of head covering, or if Paul is simply referring to women having long hair, and that is the covering that they should wear. So for instance, if your Bibles are open, look at verse 15 with me. It says this, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Glory is a word that pops up everywhere in this chapter. Long hair is given to her as a covering. So there's the word. So there's, there's an argument that is made for that. It, it has nothing to do with hats. It has more to do with long hair. But even if, if we get that settled, the question right on the heels of that is, is that still applicable for us today? Is that something that we still have to follow today? And then we have to ask new questions. What about dudes with long hair? What about women with short hair? What about those stories in scripture, like for instance, the story of Samson, who had long, flowing, beautiful locks, and God commands him not to cut his hair. Or the story of John the Baptist, who also never cut his hair, like some of the most godly men in scripture had long hair. Is this a prescription that men should have short hair and women should have long hair? Or is, just, is this just descriptive of, what, of what's happening in Corinth for some cultural reasons? Depending on how you answer those questions, you're going to go in a variety of different ways. Or how about this one? If your Bibles are open, look at this with me. It's, Paul says, woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? Or likewise, what does it mean when uh, Paul says the head of the woman is man? And what are the implications of that? What does it mean for us as uh, a Christian community to try to emulate these values of scripture. And if you're familiar with biblical scholarship, you know that a lot of trees have been killed on this verse. Churches have been divided. Denominations have split and become new based on these verses. Adam, come preach this. Join me. So I warned you, right after the human sexuality series, it doesn't get easier. Here we are. You're welcome. So here's the second challenge. There's a dispute as to why Paul is concerned about women's head being covered at all. So for instance, is this for the sake of modesty? Or is this a matter of seeking to honor gender distinctions in a culture in which that was becoming less clear? 
Is it a situation where something is happening in Corinth at that time that Paul is addressing for that unique context? Is it for another reason? And then the third challenge that really exasperates this is there's a dispute about whether this is about head coverings or hair covering, which I would argue against, or if it is about gender distinctions, which as we move forward, you'll see I will be arguing for. Now, that might sound like splitting hairs, but I would like to share with you that depending on how you answer that question, you're going to go down a variety of different paths. And so here's the fourth and final challenge, and this one makes everything we're talking about this morning even more difficult, and it's this. The different cultural worldviews and assumptions on sex and gender are enormously controversial in our context today. Understatement of the day. And so that is why this text often gets skipped. That is why pastors aren't too interested in preaching on this passage. But as I've shared with you before, we don't run after controversy, but we don't hide from it either. And this is God's word, and we want to learn from it. And that's where we are today. So here's what I want to do. I want to lay a bit of a foundation for you on how we should read and interpret passages of Scripture just like this one. What are the good hermeneutical principles that we need to follow when it comes to these sort of difficult passages to translate and to understand? And to do that, I'm going to look at another passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians. And I think if we look at that as a case study, what we're trying to do today will become more clear. So if your Bibles are open, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20. Here's how Paul ends his book with this command. He says this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. With a holy kiss. So in those days, kissing someone on both cheeks was a, a common way to show friendship, to show spiritual intimacy and warmth with the person that you were talking with, especially if they were your family, your blood family. Hang on to that. That's going to be really important. But that's not what we do today at least in the West, right? We, we don't do that anymore. Could you imagine if uh, we told all of our first impression team, all of our greeters, all of our ushers, you know what, stop saying like good morning and a handshake and giving out sermon guides. Here's what you gotta do. Take their face and kiss both cheeks. That's what you gotta do. I think our volunteers are gonna go down. And some of you, you might say, you know what, I'm not coming to church anymore. I get kissed like 12 times, you know, I'm not interested in that. So obviously that's something that we don't do anymore. But here's the question, should we? It's in the Bible. Ought we? So what's going on within this passage and what should we learn from it? So I want to show you some really important uh, Bible interpretation goals, what, what's called hermeneutics. So we got this um, on the screen here, what I'm just calling the road of hermeneutics. So just like Mr. Miyagi, here's the road. And I want to share with you that I believe there are two twin pitfalls when it comes to these really difficult translations or difficult passages that we don't know what it means for us today. For those of us who have more of a grace bent and you kind of have to remember to bring truth along for the ride, I think one of the spiritual dangers or challenges that you're going to face is that you're going to be really tempted to underapply these sorts of passages. 
And we'll talk about an example of what that looks like. For those of you who have more of a truth bent, right? You just want to make sure that everything is right, everything is true, and you got to remember to bring grace along for the ride. Your temptation, spiritually speaking, is that you are going to want to over-apply these sorts of passages. So what does it look like in 1 Corinthians 16 to underapply this passage? You might say something like this. You might say, well, since we don't do that anymore, very clearly this passage of Scripture is no longer applicable for us today. There's nothing that we can glean from this because we've moved on from that. That would be an underapplication. But one of the ways that we might overapply a passage like this is that we say something like, so because it says in scripture that you should greet one another with a holy kiss, a kiss on both cheeks, it's prescriptive. We got to do it all the time. Otherwise, we're not following God's word and you're not thinking about any of the other exegetical principles that inform what this is saying and what it's not. Thinking about cultural context, thinking about scripture interpreting scripture, thinking about what's happening within this time frame that Paul might be alluding to. So here's what's interesting about this little verse. During the first century, especially in the Jewish community, but throughout all of Rome and the surrounding cities, to kiss someone on both cheeks was a sign of affection ascribed to members of your own family. So here's what's interesting. Here's what Paul is saying. You should treat members of your spiritual family in your church the same way that you treat your blood family. You should treat them the same way. So that's the application. So here's how I would lay out the holy kiss principle. Christians ought to greet one another with the warmth and tenderness of being the spiritual family of God. That's the holy kiss principle in all times and places. And so that's what we ask our hospitality team to do. Shake your hand, say good morning, greet them with a smile, go above and beyond, offer to walk them to their seat, ask if they need anything. And that's not just our first impressions team. You too, how do you treat your own family? Do you invite them over to your house for lunch after the service? You should do that with your spiritual family too. Do you greet them as though they're the most important person in the world and you're so happy to see them? You should treat your faith family the same way. So the hermeneutical principle that Paul is drawing to mind isn't the kiss but it's how we should treat each other as family. That is the prescriptive principle in all times and places. And then the culturally appropriate version of that in the first century is to kiss cheeks, even if we don't do that today. So with that in mind, let me ask you, what are the timeless truths that Paul is expressing in this chapter? What are the timeless truths that he's expressing here? And I want you to see that both this week and next week, the overarching theme can be summarized this way. And this is how I put it in your note sheet. Unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. And that's going to become more clear as we walk through this chapter. So back to our text. Do you remember the two interpretive challenges that we started with? Number one, head coverings for women. And number two, the phrases, the head of the woman is man, and woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? Really confusing. So what's being disputed here is the Greek word kephale. Say kephale. Kephale. All right, so this is a hard word for us to translate because it's used in the Bible a variety of different ways. So one of the ways it's used is to describe leadership, 
or authority, like the head of state or the head of a school or the head of staff. Very clearly, it's a position of authority and leadership and responsibility. But also in scripture, and actually more often, it is used to describe the source of something. So for instance, every time you look up at Mount Baker, you know that there's a snowpack on the mountain. But every spring, every summer, when the weather gets warmer, that becomes the source or the headwaters for the rivers below. And in the same way, the word source is used much more frequently whenever the word kafael is used. And then depending on how you translate that, you might look at that a little bit differently. And so what is this passage laying out? Well, here's what we know for sure. If your Bibles are open, look at verse 11. It says this. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came, there is the word, from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So do you see what Paul just did? He just transported you all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Just like he did in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's alluding to Genesis 2, verse 22, that Eve came from Adam, but all of Adam's descendants came from Eve. So here, let me ask you this question. Who of you here by a show of hands was born of a woman? I'm waiting. I need 100% participation here. All right, very good, very good. Excellent. You're all born of women. So what does that mean? So Eve is the mother of us all, and all of her daughters are the mother of us all. And so that's what Paul is referencing. That's what he's alluding to, that Eve came from Adam, but all of Eve's and Adam's descendants came from Eve and her daughters. Kephael, that's the source language. Perhaps a, a helpful illustration here is um, I'm reading a book from Andrew Wilson called First Corinthians for You. It's written in very plain English. I'd highly recommend it if you uh, like reading resources and biblical commentaries. And he gives a really helpful example. Here's what he says. He says, notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that men bear the image of God and women do not, or that men are superior and women are inferior as though that needs to be shared. And then he gives this example. He says, I have an apple tree in my garden, which produces apples from which we make apple crumble. The apple is the glory of the apple tree. The tree is the source of the apple. Did you pick up the reference? The apple, the woman, is the glory of the apple tree, the man. The tree, the man, is the source of the apple, the woman. All of this is drawing us to Genesis 2. So which is better? Neither, of course. But apples shouldn't act like trees, and trees shouldn't act like apples. They're both good and useful, but they have a unique relationship with one another. That is good and right and shouldn't be muddled. To muddle this relationship is to say that God's design isn't good. Likewise, men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth. So catch the logic of Paul here. Otherwise, these 16 verses will elude us forever and we will say, what is this? Here's what he's saying. I put it this way in your note sheet. Our sex differences are part of what it means to reflect God's image. 
to reflect God's image. And to make that point more clear, Paul does exactly what he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Remember when we, when we were in our human sexuality series? We've already looked at Genesis 2 in depth. He brings us back to the creation story. He is highlighting that sexual difference between men and women is one of the ways that we can behold the glory and the magnificence and the beauty of the God that we serve. And Paul wants that to be highlighted in the worshiping community. So for the sake of our guests who weren't here during our human sexuality series, uh, when we were looking at Genesis chapter 2, we came across a really interesting word. Let me just share it with you very quickly. Genesis 2.21, this is when Adam is naming all the animals and the beasts and the fish and, and the birds. And then finally it gets to verse 21 which says this, For Adam no suitable helper was found. So Adam needed a companion. He needed a help meet. And he looked at the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the ground, and he said, that's not going to work. They're not like me. They're not human, right? But what's interesting is the word that we see in our Bible, which is suitable, that is the Hebrew word konegdo, which is two words that are thrown together. K, which means as or like, so you should think sameness, and neged, which means opposite or against, and so you should be thinking difference. So the most literal translation that we can get for this word would be something like this, same as but opposite him. So for Adam, no same as but opposite him helper could be found. And so it's highlighting something about the way that God has created us in our uniqueness as men and as women. And so here's what I think is the practical principle that is being outlined in Genesis 2, in 1 Corinthians 6, and in 1 Corinthians 11. Konegdo is used here to display how men and women are both made in God's image and how each reflects God's glory in equal but different ways. In equal but different ways. So this is an enormous affirmation for women, especially during the time in which this was written, where women were viewed as subhuman, less than human. And we even consider, we consider that word a helper, which is the word ezer. And that word in the Old Testament to the Jewish ears who were listening was most applied to one being. God. God was the great easer of the people of Israel, my ever-present help in times of trouble. God is my easer, and we see in this story that woman is the easer of man, a huge affirmation of women during this time. And so you might then say, okay, Justin, I, I get that, but what about the verse that says woman is the glory of man? Doesn't that sound a little bit sexist? Like, what, what's he saying there? That woman is the glory of man. And again, I would propose to you that it only makes sense if you're thinking like a Jewish Christian. You have to think like a Jewish Christian. This is the Bible for Jews and for Gentiles, but it was for Jews first. And so we have to think like Jewish Christians, even if we ourselves are not Jewish. And so what we see here is it's the story of the apple and the tree again. The apple comes from the tree but every other tree afterwards comes from the seed of the apple. That's what God is revealing through the Apostle Paul to this little church. And that's exactly where Genesis 2 goes next. So here's what it says. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. We looked at that. So here are the practical implications. 
The Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. We're going to get back to that word. Fascinating word. And he closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. So that is how the woman is the glory of man. Because Eve came from Adam. But if you see that word rib there, that is a fascinating word. This is the Hebrew word selah. Selah is the word here. And it is used a ton in scripture. All the time. And about 95% of the time, the word selah is used to describe the walls, the columns, the ribs, if you will, of the temple of God. Isn't that interesting? Selah is the surrounding space, the habitable home of the presence, the kabod, the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And that word is infused into the creation story. Why? Why? What does the author want you to see in this? Well, I, I put it this way. Adam's body and now Eve's body are compared to a sacred piece of architecture that radiates God's presence and his glory in the world. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's how God sees his creation. And so I think Paul would be grieved to discover that in some circles, his words have been used in, from 1 Corinthians to treat women as inferior or as subhuman or as less than because he's intending to do exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. That's why he's drawing readers back to the creation story. And so I put it this way in your note sheet. Our sex differences are not only acknowledged in Scripture, but Paul is picking up on the fact that they are considered sacred. And they are an essential part of the identity that God has assigned. Now, it's not lost on me that this conversation, which started off talking about head coverings and a woman being the glory of man, two tough enough topics as it is, has now made its way into the gender expression arena, which is also very difficult. So you might recall that fourth challenge that I laid out for you. Look at it one more time. The different worldviews and assumptions on sex and gender are enormously controversial in our context today. One more reason why 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is packed with baggage and challenges to our ears as 21st century Canadian Christians. It's very hard for us to read this passage with the eyes of the Jewish Christian community in the first century because it's packed with baggage. And so I would be remiss if I didn't remind you of something that we learned in our human sexuality series that I just want to lay at your feet one more time. And it's this, the way that we respond should reflect the character, the love, the heart, and the instruction of God. We should not be false to the truth when we talk about this. Full of grace, full of truth, as we talk about these really difficult topics. So just like I did with 1 Corinthians 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, I want to attempt to lay out the twin pitfalls of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then some of the timeless principles that we need to apply and cling to today. And I think we can do that. 
So remember that central theme. The central theme of 1 Corinthians 11 is unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. Don't forget that. And all of this is surrounding the worshiping community, what we're doing right now. Paul's not just talking about any place. He's saying, when you gather for worship, here's what I want you to be thinking about. Unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. And the twin pitfalls on this road, which were happening then and still are happening today. So let's look at the context of when this was written. It was roughly between 64 and 67 AD, only about 30 years after the ascension of Jesus. There's still hundreds upon hundreds of people who saw Jesus in the flesh, even some who witnessed the ascension of Jesus, and they're still walking the face of the earth. And this is a tiny little church that's trying to navigate how to live faithfully in Corinth, one of the most hyper-sexualized cultures in the world of all time. They're trying to figure that out. And there were twin pitfalls. On what you might just call the religious right, you had the Jewish culture, and this is some of the temptations for them, was to over-apply what Paul was saying. So let me just give you a bit of a context for this. In Jewish culture, men and women were to be separate from each other at all times in worship. You went to the synagogue, men would gather for worship, and women, they would be off in a side hallway or in a side room. And if you went to the temple, this was even more pronounced. This is the holy place, the kabod, the glory of God was in the temple. So we got a picture of this. And let me just kind of lay this out for you so you can see it a little bit better. If this is just inside the temple, if you looked on the outside, this was the court of the Gentiles all around it. Gentiles could not go into the temple. Only Jews could. And as you entered, there's a gate here, there's a gate here, there's a gate on this side, and this whole section right here is the court of women. Women could not go any further than that. And then you have the court of Israel. You can see this kind of outer ring right here. This outer ring is the court of Israel, and that is where men could go. And beyond that, only the priests could go in here, and once a year, the high priest could go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. That's how it's all laid out. Men and women are separate. Jews and Gentiles are separate. And then Jesus comes along, and when he cries out in a loud voice to his father, it is finished, what happens? The veil is torn in two. It's torn in two. And the veil is right here, because this is where the kabod, the presence, the glory of God resides. And Jesus, through his death and his resurrection on the cross, he removes the line of hostility so that men and women can worship together, so that Jews and Gentiles can worship together. A huge, amazing affirmation of what's happening at that time. So by the way, notice something really interesting. If your Bibles are open, look at this with me. It's a little bit harder to read in our NIV translation if you're looking at verse 5. Other translations, I think, do it a little bit more justice. And it starts with the word, when. So verse 5, it'll say this. When you stand up and pray, in reference to women. When you stand up and prophesy in the church service. When you deliver a spirit-given word from God. Just like Mary did in the Gospel of Luke. 
just like Deborah did in the book of Judges, just like Huldah did in the book of Chronicles, just like Priscilla did in the book of Acts, just like Phoebe did in the book of Romans, when you proclaim God's message, that is a huge affirmation because women were never allowed to do that. They were never allowed to pray publicly in worship. They were never allowed to prophesy publicly in worship. And yet that is happening in this place right here. So let me ask you, why is that so important for Paul to express? Why does he have to say that? Because on the other hand, there is the counterculture and that is the culture of Corinth. And you might just call that the religious left response. And so they had a desire for unity, but the way that they found unity is they tried to whitewash everything. They tried to throw everything in the blender so that there was no distinction whatsoever between men or between women. You saw this especially in the temple of Aphrodite. And we talked a lot about that, what was happening in the temple of Aphrodite. Both men and women, boys and girls, if they were call boys or call girls, many of them would shave their head. And they'd have no hair on their entire body. And it was hard to recognize the gender differences when you went and worshipped in this pagan temple. And that was just part of their cultic practices. And that understanding really informs why Paul is so concerned about head coverings and worship in this culture and in this context. And so... On the one hand, you have Jews, they were uber-traditional and patriarchal. On the other hand, you have Corinth, which is one of the most hyper-sexualized cultures in the world. Remember, I shared with you early on in this series that to Corinthianize, that's a verb, right? And so there'd be a mother talking to her adult son, don't you go Corinthianizing your life when you go up to Corinth. So there's constant warnings during that time. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to fall into either of these two camps. I don't want you to over-apply nor to under-apply what I'm trying to teach you about gender distinctions. So you have this little church in Corinth. And the desire is for all of them to worship together, even in their differences. Do you see just how radical that is? I don't think it's an understatement to say that this is the first time in human history in which you have men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, barbarians and others, Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens, all worshiping together. The first time in human history happened in this little church in Corinth. And so you had landowners, working class, every tribe, every race, every tongue, every nation, and they were all worshiping God together as equals. It's never happened before. Never had it happened before. And so, yeah, it was messy. It was extremely messy. And this is a body of believers that's united, not under the banner of race, not under tribe, not under ethnicity, not under gender, but under Jesus. Under Jesus. And so here's Paul's desire. Getting down to brass tacks, he wants to outline two things in these 16 verses. Number one, men and women are different. Number two, men and women equally reflect God's image and are of equal value. Both of those things. Not one, not the other, but both. So listen, to highlight just one of these principles without the other, is a diminishment of what the gospel is highlighting in this story. It's one of the ways that we can be false to the truth. 
And remember, when we talked about the twin pitfalls of greeting one another with a holy kiss, we can do it here too. We can underapply this passage. We can overapply this passage. So think about this with me. One of the ways that we overapply this, especially in religious communities and in churches, we've not always been careful enough when stuffing our own modern-day expectations of what it means to be a man and a woman. Isn't it interesting in our Bible stories, we spend a lot of time talking about David and Goliath, but we spent almost no time talking about David and Jonathan. And what does David say about Jonathan? It was not a sexual relationship. It was a spiritual relationship. And he says, your love for me is better than many lovers. There's tenderness and love and joy and contentment among these two men who become spiritual comrades. So we think about those stories, but not those ones. Or we think about the stories of women. Why don't we highlight Proverbs chapter 31? She considers a field and she buys it. She's an entrepreneur. She's a business person. And so there's certain narratives in scripture that I think we really try to glean from and other ones we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about. And yet, if you look at all of the breadth of scripture, I think you get a very different story. So one of the things that we need to be careful of is not over-applying these sorts of passages. But one of the ways that we might be tempted to under-apply this is when we fail to recognize the differences between the apple and the tree. So here's, here's a way of thinking about this. Who here, by a show of hands, loves steak? Where are my peeps at? I like all of you. You're all awesome. Steaks. Okay, here's my next question. Who, who here, by a show of hands, loves ice cream? Awesome. Very good. Okay, final question. Who here by a show of hands loves steak and ice cream in a blender as a shake? Oh, I want to see it. I want to see it. I'm going to hold you to it. Not very many of you. Isn't that interesting? Why is that the case? Because you love the distinctness of it, right? Steak is good. Ice cream is good. I don't want to blend those things together. Blah, that's disgusting. And yet there's a temptation for us, friends, in our desire for unity to create uniformity to get rid of any sort of distinction because it's just easier. And yet we serve a God who loves unity in diversity. He said, I made it that way and it's beautiful and it's grand and I want it to continue. You think about uh, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. If you're taking notes, uh, consider writing that down and reading the context later. It is a story in which all of God's people are centered around the throne room of the lamb. All of the tribes, tongues, and nations, they have begun to bow down to God and worship. And isn't it interesting that they go out of their way to still talk about the distinctions? Different people, different tribes, different colors of skin, all coming together and worshiping before our God together. God says, I love diversity. And there should be no other place more diverse than my church because we don't come together because of our race or our tribe or our economic class or our gender or any other thing. We come together under the banner of Jesus. That's why we're here. And so we have to be careful, friends, not to underapply this passage by whitewashing everything, but by celebrating our uniqueness and our diversity in Jesus. So here's a way of thinking about this. This also comes from Andrew Wilson. I'm just robbing it, and I'm calling it the unity in diversity principle. He says this, if the way you're trying to show distinction actually degrades one gender, that's a failure. 
However, if the way you're trying to display equality actually erases any distinction altogether, that's a failure too. And that is what Paul is seeking to convey to this little church. I want you to celebrate your unity in diversity. And in that way, we become like a beautiful mosaic before God. Every color, every tribe, every tongue, every nation under God. To him alone be the glory. Even in those moments where it might, you might ask yourself questions like, like, why is that so important, God? In those moments where it feels a little bit like wax on, wax off. I just don't get it. Catch that vision, friends, of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, our unity in diversity. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.